many of you are movie lovers out there? Okay, quite a few of you assume that. How many of you love movies with bad endings? Can you, think of, can you think of one? Can you think of a movie you really loved until the ending? The bad guy wins. It's not a happy ending. It's forced. The plot is left unresolved. People have really strong opinions about the ending of movies. Google the subject and you get responses like 10 worst endings of great movies. Worst movie endings of all time. And the 15 worst movie endings that still anger fans today. Wow, wow. People do feel pretty strongly about this subject. Some movies, I noticed, showed up on multiple lists. Perhaps you've seen some of these. The 2005 version of War of the Worlds apparently had a bad ending. Also, there you see it. Also, um, Titanic showed up on many of the lists. I'm sure many of you saw that. One of my personal favorites, The Village, showed up on it. I happen to like that ending, actually. And then finally, the recent Man of Steel. A lot of people were disappointed in the ending of The Man of Steel. Can you think of one? Can you think of a movie that you didn't like the ending of? T turn to your neighbor and tell them. <laughs> that was my plan <laughs> before they were shouted out from the audience. Man, you guys are really into this subject. <laughs> oh, my. How many of you had one, by the way? How many besides Linda? How many of you had one? <laughs> Just a few of you. A few of you could remember one. Oh. Well, at the end of the day, right, your evaluation of a movie's ending hinges on what you're looking for, right? If you're in a melancholy mood, you might not mind the hero dying or the bad guy getting away. If you are feeling philosophical about life, you might not mind fuzzy endings like the river runs through it. I could watch that a hundred times and not know what they were talking about at the end. <laughs> If you're looking for an escape, what do you want? You want a Disney ending. You want everything tidied up neatly in the end. The good guys, you know, move forward. The bad guys don't get away with it. Now, if the latter describes you, you like your movies with happy endings, which is okay, by the way. Don't be ashamed of that. I like movies with happy endings, too. But if that's who you are, I'm afraid that you are not going to like the end of 2 Samuel. The author does not give you a Disney ending as he wraps up the life of David in the final four chapters. And actually on the first reading, the conclusion is quite puzzling and frankly disturbing. I remember when my wife and I read through 2 Samuel, just one chapter an evening, about 9 to 10, 12 months ago. And I just thought to myself, how in the world am I going to preach on these subjects? Can't we do something different? Can't we do something else? Before we dive into the story, there are a couple of things we need to say right at the outset. Things that will help 
us to read the Bible intelligently and to interpret it according to its intended meaning. First, C.S. Lewis said this, that it's often the parts of the Bible that we find hard and which we don't like that help us grow, help most help us grow in knowing God. Because the reason we find them hard is that our assumptions about God are wrong and they need challenging and changing, close quote. You know, imagine if the Bible affirmed all of our 21st century American beliefs about life and about nature and about faith. Wouldn't you be suspicious that we made it up? Wouldn't you be suspicious that revisionists came along and twisted its meaning to fit what we wanted and what we needed? If the Bible does indeed come from heaven, if its origin is from somewhere outside of us, if it is written, which it claims to be written, for every age and every culture, then we should expect that in some places it will feel odd and it will challenge our preconceptions. So that's one thing to keep in mind here. The second thing to keep in mind is that there are stories in the Bible that are perplexing and are puzzling and are disturbing that leave you with a feeling of what is going on here and where is God? A superficial reading, like I was doing with my wife, a superficial reading of these stories leaves you with more questions than answers. Now, there are parts of the Bible that are straightforward, but others are puzzling. But let me offer you this morning, when you come to a Bible story that is puzzling or confusing or offensive, let me offer that God is inviting you to think more deeply about it. Okay? When it's puzzling, God's inviting you. Think more deeply about this subject. Great treasures of the Bible are not there for the casual and mildly curious. But they are hidden. And they require digging below the surface. And because these passages are hard to understand, it is also important that we learn together in community. And not just read alone. That's why we're here this morning and why we are talking about it. So go ahead and turn to page 277 in your pew Bible. It's where we are. Or your device, or if you brought your own Bible this morning. I did a lot of research for today's message. But to bring some focus to it and to help me get done, I... I'm going to follow the basic approach by a commentator named Tim Chester. And when he said something that others did not say, I'm going to be sure to, sure to cite him as well. So let's pray and uh, ask the Holy Spirit, Father and the Holy Spirit, Son, to help us this morning. Father, we, uh, we come before you like little children. And we need you to break through, to help us to see and to understand and to believe in what's real and what's true. Um, as Nick prayed, 
um, all around us we experience doubts and we experience truths that, that just don't line up with the reality of what you say and speak. And your words are so important to us. We pray that we could understand them clearly and plainly this morning. And that you would remove whatever obstacles we have. And that, Father, this morning, what we receive would not just be head knowledge. I mean, it would be head knowledge. It would um, speak to what's true and right. But it would also be heart knowledge. It would impact our hearts, not just our heads. It would impact the whole of us. We pray that, Lord, where there needs to be healing this morning, you'd bring healing. Where shame needs to be released, there'd be shame released. Where forgiveness needs to be received and extended, forgiveness would be received and extended and embraced. Father, thank you that you are a healer. You are a reconciler. And may we experience your healing. May we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit this morning. May he throw a floodlight on who Jesus is. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Okay, all right, so I want us to look at these last four chapters here. This concluding section begins in chapter 21, and it's quite clear that these last four chapters are a unit, that they're together. They're, they, they provide a conclusion as the writer seeks to sum up David's life. He begins in chapter 21 with a sin from the days of Saul that must be addressed. Next, he describes David's mighty men who were loyal to him through all of his years of trouble. Chapter 22 is David's exuberant song of praise. Chapter 23 are his last words. At the end of chapter 23, again, more mighty men and their exploits are listed. Amazing, miraculous, Hollywood movie type stuff. All of these could have been a perfect Hollywood ending. But there's still a chapter to go. Chapter 24, and it's not all that exciting. It involves a census, an accounting procedure. We end with the exploits of state employees, state workers. Now, my wife happens to work in the auditing department for the state of Ohio, so let's, she, but she does live an exciting life. She walks around, she's an auditor, so she walks around state departments with a big stick. She's little, but she's got a big stick. And most important, about chapter 24, it is not a triumphal ending for David. It is another colossal failure. That's how the writer chooses to end the life of David. Now, the final story in chapter 24, in all likelihood, is not the last event in David's life. As in other places of this book, we've learned the author does not necessarily give things in a sequential order. Rather, he has something he is trying to communicate to us. Why did he put this chapter last? That's part of what we must try to understand today. Why? We want to try to figure that out. What I want to begin by showing you here as we actually look into the text is that chapter 21 and chapter 24 are bookends. Here in a story within the story. In chapter 21, there are three years of famine in the land as a result 
of a sin committed by Saul. In chapter 24, there are three days of plague in, a land, in the land as a result of a sin committed by David. In chapter 21, we are told that by an act of atonement or making amends, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. The famine stopped. And in verse 25 of chapter 24, this same phrase is used. That God withdrew the pestilence after sacrifices had been offered, again, on behalf of the land. It's quite clear that these are bookends to a story within a story. Now let's begin looking at uh, verse 1, chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. They're an, an, an enemy. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Now, you can go back and read about this in the book of Joshua. What had happened was as they were traveling through the promised land, the Gibeonites knew they were in trouble, so they deceived Israel and made a pact with them, and Israel agreed not to attack the Gibeonites. Now again, they had deceived them. And we don't know, we're not told exactly what happened, but apparently under the ruse, because of that deception, and the pretext of that deception, Saul used that as an excuse to break the oath, and we have hints here that it was a massacre. That Saul went in and massacred a bunch of Gibeonites after Israel had sworn an oath to protect them. Okay? You see the picture here? And God, the God of Israel, could not ignore this. The other gods of the ancient Near East, oh, they, 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 they excuse, they justify that kind of behavior all the time. But the God of Israel, Yahweh, could not. The breaking of an oath, the shedding of innocent blood was unjust. And because of this, God's own people are punished with famine. So David seeks the Lord, and this is what God tells him. So David goes to the Gibeonites and says, guys, how can we make this right? How can this wrong be reconciled? Look at verse 4. The Gibeonites said to him, to David, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say? David said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them, some versions say impale them, before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Hmm. What have they said here? They said, money is not enough. Money will not make this right. Nor do we have the power to put anybody to death in Israel. The Gibeonites 
are looking for justice. And so they asked for seven sons of Saul. Now back in Joshua 9, middle of the chapter, I believe, it says that Israel entered into a covenant, a promise. It says the idea here literally is they cut a covenant with the Gibeonites not to harm them. And some of you know this, but in ancient days when you made a covenant, here's how you would make it. The two of you would get together who were making an agreement. You would kill some poor animal. You would put the carcasses of the animal on either side of you, creating a pathway. And then you would walk together, back to back, looking at that bloody mess. And you would say to each other, if either of us, if I break this covenant, may I be like them. Now do that next time you sign a mortgage. (laughs) All right? Do that next time you sign a mortgage. It was a blood covenant. May we be like them if we break this covenant. That's what ancient covenants consisted of. Saul has done a terrible harm to them, and they want justice. What do we make of this request and David giving it to them? Now, the Old Testament, let's be clear, clear, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 24.16 says children should not die for the sins of their fathers. Okay, are we clear on that? Children should not die for the sins of their fathers. But this case, I believe, is different. This case is different. Saul had not done this act representing himself, but representing the nation. If a national leader or dignitary does something to another individual acting as an individual, then their sins or their justice is only related to that individual. But if the person is acting on behalf of the nation, that's a different deal. If a national leader in our country or another country calls for the assassination of a foreign leader, who experiences the repercussions of that? Is it just the leader or is it the entire nation? I think that is the situation that we have here. The consequences fall on the nation that they represent. Look at verse 8 and 9. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, Armani, and Mephibosheth. This is not the same Mephibosheth, by the way. And then the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul. These are, these are grandsons, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them or impaled them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Another commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says rightly that no one can evade the raw horror of this scene. We can only try to understand. Saul is long gone, and he cannot suffer the penalty for what he did. But a price must be paid. There is blood guilt. Davis goes on to say that most readers are simply aghast at the sheer horror of this episode. And this, he suggests, is the primary application. It's what the author wants to communicate. 
We should be aghast at this subject. Atonement for sin is not a safe subject. Atonement for sin is not some clever, ingenious accounting trick. It's not some theoretical exchange. Atonement for sin. What or who? What or who can really make up for the wrong that human beings do to one another and the wrong that they do to God? The writer wants us to linger for a while at this place, to think about the impact of atonement, to ponder the tragedy of its necessity, and consider God's holy passion towards injustice. Look at verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain upon them, rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ahah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. Why does the writer include this? Because he wants us to see the tragedy of atonement. Every mother in this room can picture this. Two of your sons hanging, their flesh rotting, and you going out every day for, this is about a two or three month period, and shooing away the birds and the vultures so that their flesh is not consumed and eaten up. We think, What is God? Where is God in this? What is this about? I'm not sure I fully understand this. And I surely feel the same revulsion that you do. But is it possible, I just wonder, that God wants us to see that atonement for sin is never easy. It is not sanitized. It is not easily tidied up. We can't sweep wrongs under the carpet pretending they never happened. But rather, atonement is messy and bloody and smelly business. Worshippers in Israel were familiar with atonement. They had first-hand knowledge of it. Worshippers in Israel did not experience atonement in a book, but rather by the terrible awakening of all five of their senses. Every time they pulled a bull into the tabernacle for sacrifice and slit its throat and skinned it and cut it in pieces, they knew atonement was all blood and gore. This is the blood guilt of Saul here in chapter 21. This is the blood guilt of Saul. It shows atonement when your crime is against people. But what if your crime is against God? And for that, we have to look at chapter 24. So... Skip a few pages over. We, we, we doing okay? I know this is pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? Pretty crazy stuff. But it's here, right? It's here, so we have to address it, right? We've got to address it head on. So the bookend of this. Let me outline what happens here in chapter 24. There's a great sin in the land, for the anger of God is stirred against his people. 
God's not happy. And the puzzling part of it is, is that we're not certain exactly what it is. One thing we do know for certain is that David is involved in it, and the people bear responsibility as well. In verse 1, David calls for a census of the fighting men, the warriors. In verse 3, Joab, his commander, who's not the best guy in the world, pleads with him not to do it. Now, we don't have, again, the information on what's so wrong about this, but it is clear that Joab believes it's wrong, and he begs David to let it go. But David prevails. It could be that David and the nation are placing their confidence in military might. It could be that they had become overly militaristic, militaristic, placing way too much confidence in their military. They are a local superpower. After the nine or ten month census is completed, there is a total of 1.3 million warriors. It's a lot of guys. And hey, a king and a people with that size of army has no real need to depend on God. Or maybe there was, maybe they had used that military in a way that dishonored God and was not according to what God wanted. Maybe there was blood guilt. I, we don't know for sure. But whatever it is, it seems to be at least a misplaced confidence and the census, the act of the census, has put this sin out into the open. So God has to try to communicate to David, so he sends a prophet by the name of Gad. It's a funny name, isn't it? Gad. There's not too many Gads left today. Gad. And what follows again is tremendous drama. Again, remember, something terribly wrong has happened. A sin against God. And to address it, atonement must be sought. So God offers David three choices. David, you can have three years of famine. Remember the tide of chapter 21? David, you can flee for three months from your pursuers. He's pretty old right now. That's, that's not too good. Or you can have three days of pestilence. Chapter 24, verse 14, all David can do is to throw himself onto the mercy of God. And he says, David said to Gad, try to picture this, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. He's not sure what to do. God, you make the decision. I don't know what to decide. You make the decision, God. Chester goes on to say that there, Chester says that people say there's one thing worse than falling into the hands of an enemy, and that's falling into the hands of God. Yes, it can be worse because you can't escape him nor defeat him. But it is also true that God's judgment is measured and it is merciful. And for that reason, David throws himself into the hands of God. And yet God's judgment stands. The pestilence begins. And it is terrible. It is terrible. Verse 15, the pestilence comes. And over three days, 70,000 people die. 70,000. Verse 16, we read that the judging angel is approaching Jerusalem itself. When God says enough, God stops. 
God relents. Mercy is exercised. The people deserve to die, but mercy is given. And what have we learned when mercy is given? What must happen when mercy is given? There must be an atonement. There must be an atonement. By the way, a little FYI, this is the fundamental difference, the most basic difference between the Christian faith and the Muslim faith. The Muslim faith, God forgives only based on his mercy without any sacrificial atonement. The Christian faith requires a sacrificial atonement. Verse 18, Gad came to that day to David and said to him, Go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David is told to build an altar where he can offer sacrifice. The sacrifice is a picture of atonement. An animal is sacrificed for the sins of the people. We see that, verse 23, Arunah offers oxen for the sacrifice. David buys the land where he is directed to build the altar. There must be no shortcuts. Everything must be done. David painfully goes through a process to make sure everything is done correctly in verse uh, uh, 18. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 23. Verse 24, I'm sorry. Now had wanted to give him the land. David insists on buying it. In verse 24, David says, I will not... Give or offer a burnt offering to my Lord, my God, that costs me nothing. What is going on here? What is going on in the building of this altar? Tim Chester says the point is this. The plague stops because of sacrifice. 70,000 people have died. More people deserve to die. But instead, an animal dies in their place. It's still bloody and it's still brutal. But it's an animal dying in the place of people. This is God's mercy. You see, this is a significant place and moment in Israel's history. Arunah's threshing floor, his threshing floor, becomes a holy place. Now remember, when we're trying to read the Bible for its intended meaning, the geographical places in the Old Testament are very important. God links together actual geographical places in order to provide context and meaning. The connection helps us to know God and to understand God. Where exactly was this threshing floor that became an altar? Well, 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells us it was at Mount Moriah. Now, those of you who know your Bible know what Mount Moriah means. This was near the place where Solomon built the temple where sacrifices for sins were offered. This was the place a thousand years earlier where the father of the Jews, Abraham, was told to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But God provided a substitute. God provided a ram. This is the place, this place was where Israel found atonement, where things were made right, where judgment was averted by a substitute. Of course, the problem was is that animals could never truly deal with our sin or absorb the justice of God. 
So, why is this incident highlighting David's failure and the sin of the people held up at the end of the story? As if it's the climax of David's life. Why is this at the end? Why is this conclusion? We get a clue and a hint in verse 17 in chapter 24. When David saw everything that was going on, he spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David sees what is going on, and he doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't justify what his decision was. He allows it to break his heart. He bears the responsibility, and he turns to God in desperation. Please, God, let this judgment fall on me. Let it come on me and my family. Chester says that this prayer haunts history. This prayer, let judgment fall on me, hangs over the house of David. But David couldn't pay for it because David had his own sins to pay for. But in another thousand years, in another thousand years comes a great, 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 etc., 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 grandson of David. He is simply called the son of David. He said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, too, saw the judgment of God hanging, suspended over people. His tender mercy was stirred inside of him. And in so many words, he said, let that judgment fall on me. And he, unlike David, was perfect and innocent. Therefore, he was worthy to die for others. The judgment of God did fall near the temple where Abraham had offered a substitute, where David had built the altar. Judgment fell at that same spot. Jesus, the innocent one, hung on a cross. Except this time the judgment was not averted. There was no voice telling Abraham to stop. There was no mere animal substitute. Judgment fell fully, heavily, and long on Jesus until the Father's holy passion, His holy wrath was satisfied. It was a bloody, terrible, gory, revolting scene. Why? Why? What does God want us to see in the cross? What did God want us to see as those seven men hung between heaven and earth? What God wants us to see is that atonement is ugly because sin is ugly. Atonement is ugly because sin is ugly. Chester says sin presents itself to us with a beautiful mask so that we are tempted. But behind the mask is a rotting corpse. Sin is death. Death is sin in its true colors. And death is what is required for sin to be atoned for. Close quote. If God forgave without any atonement, if God just said, I'm just going to wake up one day 
roll some dice. Uh, one side says I'll judge you forever. The other side says I'll forgive you. I roll a four. Okay, I'll forgive you guys. You know, if God rolled up and just arbitrarily gave forgiveness, do you realize that sin would become meaningless? And if sin becomes meaningless, your actions become meaningless. And if your actions become meaningless, you become meaningless. When we see the cross, when we see the cross, we see the victims of Larry Nasser. Men and, in this case, women who have suffered from sexual abuse, whose lives are forever changed. When we see the cross, we see the hatred, the nastiness of white nationalists. When we see the cross, we see the violence of Antifa. When we see the cross, we see the genocide of entire ethnic groups. When we see the cross, we see the burning of churches and the beheading of innocents. When we see the cross, we see the tennis shoe. One tennis shoe of a seven-year-old girl washed up on the beaches of Greece because she drowned in the Adriatic Sea, fleeing a war she had nothing to do with. This is why the cross is a bloody mess. Because our sin is a bloody mess. When we see the cross, we see what is wrong inside of our hearts. We see anger. We see negativity. We see the pessimism that breaks up families, that steals the joy of children through our words, that wrecks marriages and lives, that oppresses others because we insist on getting what we want. When we see the cross, that's what we see. We see in the cross those that have robbed others to flourish as God intended. On the cross, God thunders from heaven, you matter, your actions matter, justice matters. Injustice will not stand and wrongs will be made right. On the cross, in the blood and the gore, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. Friends, it's just so clear to me. It's not just some clever little trick. This is the way the Holy Spirit ends the book of 2 Samuel. Without doubt, pointing to an event that would take place a thousand years into the future. David was a remarkable man and a great king, but in the end, he too disappointed. His final failure throws a floodlight on what Jesus the true and lasting and eternal king would accomplish at the cross and through his resurrection. In this closing today, we see why the atonement was necessary. And we see also how God loves us so much. This was a problem the human planet bears witness that it's a problem we created and we could not solve it. And God solved it himself through the person of his son. 
The cross promises to make you right. It promises to reconcile you to the Father. The word atones literally means to cover over your sin. We no longer have to bear the penalty of sin. Because he bore it on his body. I thought it would be appropriate at this moment. I have one more verse I'm going to share, but let's take a pause. Nick, come on up. Nick's going to sing a song for us. I said a couple of times that I think that one commentator said, you know, our primary application is just to linger for a while at the cross. Let's linger for a while at the cross. Feel free, feel free to sing along.
band, you can come on up. You can come on up. Just look at this last verse, the very center of David's song. You remember we began 1 Samuel with the, the poem of Hannah? And David virtually repeats a line here in his own song and poem. We see the beginning of the book and the end of the book tied together. Chapter 22, verse 28, David said, you rescue the humble. That was his lifelong experience. But your eyes watch the proud and humiliate them. This morning, for you to receive forgiveness, for you to receive deliverance from your adversity, for you to receive healing and the freedom from shame and the freedom from anxiety, will you but just say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I can't do it on my own. I can't make it on my own. I need you. You come and help me. It's the one thing that God requires of you. He only saves. He will never save those who think they can save themselves. He will only save those who realize they can't save themselves and ask him to save them. We're going to keep singing. We're going to keep worshiping. Keep in prayer and we'll take our offering as a way of giving back to him. But let's continue to sing. Let's continue to worship. Let's remember, let's keep thanking him for the atonement.